You're about to hear a message that was preached at Calvary Fellowship in Miramar, Florida. At Calvary, we exist to help people take their next step with God. And we pray that this message helps you do just that. Hey guys, welcome back to OnlineCalvary.com and I want to welcome you to our Good Friday service and I know what you're thinking. Pastor Bob, you're wearing a tie and I'm wearing pajamas. I know. And I just, uh, this is how I dress normally around the house. But I am very excited to be with you. And so as we get started, I want to tell you, let's take it all the way back to the eighth grade. When I was in the eighth grade, we had a pop quiz in our science class. This is at St. Edward's School in Brockton, Massachusetts. I did great on the test, by the way. I only missed three questions. The problem is this kid named JP who sat next to me only got three questions wrong also. The other problem is, is he got the same three questions wrong. The other problem is, is that he put the same wrong answers for the same three questions that we both got wrong. So we got sent to the teacher's desk and uh, she asked me, by the way, she never asked JP this question. She said, Robert, did you copy off JP's paper? And I said, no, ma'am. And she said, that's weird because on question number 20, he wrote, I don't know. And you wrote me neither. And, <laughs> and so now, uh, the truth is she made me retake the test. Now, the thing you got to understand is I have a very good memory. And so by the time I wrote all the answers, I had memorized most of them. So the second time I took the test, I got three wrong again. And so she gave me six wrong, which once again was a 70%. I was thrilled for the C minus. And uh, now here's the thing you got to understand. Tests in school are about recall. They are given to see if we have committed the memory in the, the material in question, if we've committed it to memory. Tests in life are a little bit different. Tests in life are about lessons, and they're given to see if the lessons that we've learned have transformed our character. Now, you know this to be true in, in your history, that there are probably a few tests that have shaped you in life like nothing else has. And those tests... And the retelling of the story has shaped you. You see, that's true for you. That's true for me. That's true for all of us. It's true for our nation. And in fact, I can assure you when this season of our lives, when the quarantine era ends and we go back to life as normal, whatever that looks like, and, and then someone says to us that didn't live through the quarantine era, man, I wish I could just stay home for a month. Right, like someone is, that person's gonna get slapped in the head because there's gonna be this generation that was born at some point that has no recollection of, of what you know COVID-19 is and then uh, they're gonna complain about having to take their kids to the mall or having to go to the store with their parents and you're gonna tell them a story and the story will have shaped you and even the retelling of the story will have shaped you and you're gonna tell them of a time when all the malls were empty when all the stores were closed and when you went to Publix, honestly, not because you even needed anything, but because you just wanted to walk around a little bit. Now, the very same thing is true for the people of Israel in Jesus' day. They weren't around when God's people were slaves in Egypt, but they had a holiday that kind of enforced this idea where the entire nation had to remember a moment, whether they were alive in that moment or not. And see, they were to remember the extraordinary circumstances that God orchestrated to bring about their freedom. 
How? With a meal. And then seven days following where they couldn't eat any bread that had leaven or yeast in it. The day was called Passover and the week that followed was called the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And this day marks the end of Jesus's ministry with his disciples. What we call the Last Supper is essentially a Passover meal. And it, once again, it marks the end of Jesus's ministry because later that night, Jesus would be arrested. He'd be taken through six mock trials throughout the night. He'd be beaten in the cruelest of ways. And by 9 a.m. the following morning, Jesus would be crucified on a Roman cross, hanging next to two common criminals. So I want to take you back and remind us for a moment to go back to the dinner time the night before Jesus was betrayed, then later crucified and buried. You see, this is the moment that Jesus says that he's been looking forward to. He's been looking forward to celebrate this one final Passover with his disciples. Now, a little bit of background as we take a running start into this. The Passover celebrates the last night of slavery for the children of Israel. It was when the 10th and final plague was poured out on Pharaoh and the Egyptians. And if you're not familiar with the story in Exodus or you've never seen the movie, it is the death of the firstborn in all of Egypt. And, but anyone who was in a house where there were, was blood on the doorposts, the angel of death would pass over and the firstborn child in that home would be spared. Then after the plague had struck and Egypt was in total disarray and there was crying and screaming and, and, and really mayhem ensuing, that they were to leave Egypt in haste. So there would be no time to wait for the yeast to make the bread rise. That's why they would eat bread for the next seven days in perpetuity. In fact, in the book of Exodus chapter 13, it says this. It says, and Moses said to the people, remember this day in which you went out of Egypt, out of the house of bondage, for by strength of the hand of the Lord, you were brought out of this place. No leavened bread shall be eaten. On this day, you are going out in the month of Abib, and it shall be when the Lord brings you into the land of the Canaanites and the Hittites and the Amorites and the Hivites and the Jebusites, and I'm sure some of the Uptites were there too, uh, where, which he swore to your fathers to give you, by the way, the Uptites was just me, that's not in the Bible, and uh, which he swore to your fathers to give you a land flowing with milk and honey that you should keep this service in this month. This is the moment where the Passover is instituted. That that night when the firstborn was spared, the night when they left in haste from Egypt to the promised land, this would be the night that they would always remember. And this would be part of not just the memory of that generation, but it would be part of the collective memory of an entire nation, even to this day. So now from 1450 BC or so, let's fast forward almost 1,500 years, the people of Israel have continued keeping the feast. They're living in the land of Israel. They are the fulfillment. They are living out the fulfillment of that promise. And Jesus is now in an upper room with his disciples, a guest room with his disciples. And he's gonna change the meaning of this feast forever. And most of us miss it because we aren't Jewish. 
And yet, listen, these young men in the upper room who had grown up studying the Torah, who had grown up studying the Hebrew scriptures, who now had been celebrating this feast every year for their entire lives would have taken notice. But here's the thing for us. It changed everything. Because it's on this night, the Passover, that we celebrate the covenant that God is making with us. It's on this night that Jesus tells his disciples, hey, I know that there's been a covenant that God made with Israel, but I want to tell you something, that I'm making a new covenant with you and with everyone who follows. So we're going to start in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 22, and here's what we read, starting in verse 14. It says that when the hour had come, he sat down and the 12 apostles with them. And he said to them, with fervent desire, I have desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I say to you, I no longer eat of it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And then he took the cup, he gave thanks and said, take this and divide it among yourselves. For I say to you, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took the bread and gave thanks and broke it and gave it to them saying, this is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Likewise, he also took the cup after supper saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is shed for you. But behold, the hand of my betrayer is with me on the table. And truly the son of man goes as it has been determined, but woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. And then they began to question among themselves which of them was who would do this thing. If you pause there and give me your attention, the Passover is a, a wonderful celebration of uh, through God's promises that he has made to the people in the book of Exodus. And because most of the gospels focus on one cup and this one moment where they take the bread. We don't realize that the Passover actually has four cups of wine throughout the feast. Now, uh, years and years ago, we did a Passover Seder at Calvary and a wonderful uh, Jewish believer in Jesus was kind enough to lead it for us, an amazing experience, and maybe we'll do that again uh, at some point. But all four cups are tied to four promises that God makes to the people in the book of Exodus chapter six, verses six and seven, and we'll cover those. But uh, the first is this, there, there's four cups. The first cup, and if you're a note taker, you'll see it in your notes. The first is called the cup of sanctification. This is where God is removing the people from Israel. Now the word sanctified uh, or sanctification is a word, it's a kind of a fancier Bible word that means to set something apart but to set it apart for a special purpose. And so this is where God is taking the people of Israel and he's removing them from Egypt and bringing them to a place of freedom by setting them apart from the rest of the world. This is why in the first section of Exodus chapter six, verse six, uh, God says, therefore say to the Israelites, I am the Lord and I will bring you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians. Now, this is not the cup that's mentioned in the gospel, although it has huge significance uh, for 
us because we've been removed from the kingdom of darkness and brought into the kingdom of light because of what Jesus has done for us. The second cup is what's called the cup of praise. And this is where God declares to the people that they are going to be delivered from slavery. The second part of Exodus 6 verse 6 says, I will free you from being slaves to them. And this cup was the celebration of the good news that God had heard their continual prayers and now was going to answer. The third cup is what's called the cup of redemption. And this is where God declares that he is going to take back what is rightfully his, his people. In the third part of Exodus chapter six, verse six, he says, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with mighty acts of judgment. And this is the cup that we celebrate at communion as believers. This is the cup that Jesus picks up at the Passover and he says, whenever you drink this, remember me. The fourth cup is what's called the cup of acceptance. And it's where God declares that these, the children of Israel will be his people and that he will be their God. And in Exodus chapter six, verse seven, it says, and I will take you as my own people and I will be your God. Now back to the Luke passage. Jesus raises a cup at the beginning of the meal. Now this is the only gospel that actually mentions two cups, but this is more than likely the first or second cup that we covered just a moment ago. And then it's happening at the beginning of the meal, most likely the first cup. And so he gives it to them, they all partake of it. And then he takes bread. Now this is where if you are, once again, uh, a Jewish believer, uh, or you are, you know, one of these guys. I mean, they, they certainly would have understood because these guys were celebrating Passover their entire lives. So Jesus takes the bread and he says, this bread is my body. And just before they take a bite, I'm sure what they're looking at like, what did he just say? That he, that's what? It, it's, 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 it's his body. And then Jesus says, do this in remembrance of, and these guys are thinking, you know, we, we've been doing this in remembrance of since birth, right? We're doing this in remembrance of God's deliverance of the people from slavery in Egypt. And that's not what he says. And of course, you know that, that he says, do this in remembrance of me. He's changing the meaning of it. Now, I want you to understand, for, we, we don't think that because we've kind of understood that ever since we became Christians, right? Those of us that are Christians, and it's obviously probably the majority of us, we've come into church, we've experienced communion, we've heard this, every time you do this, do this in remembrance of me. But I mean, from their perspective as Jew, you know, these Jewish followers of Jesus, this was very strange. This is the equivalent of me coming into Calvary one Sunday and saying, guys, you know, as Christmas is getting closer, we're gonna do a couple things differently this year. You know how typically we celebrate the birth of Jesus? at Christmas. Well, I thought, it, I thought it would be a real hoot, but this year we're actually going to celebrate my birth and uh, we're going to set up a tree and presents and, and all of that. And, and uh, you know, from now on, Christmas is going to be about me. And what you would do is after you threw something at me and rightly so, you would walk out and never return. And, uh, and by the way, if you, I ever do anything like that, you have my permission to walk out and never return. Now, and I, you say, Pastor Bob, that's, that's totally ridiculous. And I would agree, it's a totally ridiculous illustration. Plus, my birthday's in October anyway, it doesn't work. Uh, but here's the thing. Jesus is changing way more than just disrupting a birthday celebration. Jesus is making the Passover about him. You see, 
I mean, who knows what the disciples are thinking? They're going through the entire meals and uh, the entire meal. And then after supper, Jesus picks up the third cup, the cup of redemption and says, this cup is. And they're like, we know it's the cup of redemption. It's the cup of God redeeming his people. And he says, this cup is the new covenant. It's the new covenant in my blood. Now, let me stop for a second and define a couple of terms that are important for us. In the history of Israel, there are two kinds of promises that God makes with the people. He makes conditional promises and he makes unconditional promises. Unconditional promises are when God says to someone that he's going to do something, whether they hold up their end of the bargain or not. When God says to Abraham, I'm going to make you a great nation. It didn't matter what Abraham did. God was going to fulfill that promise. But there were other promises that God makes. Like when you get, when the children of Israel come out of Egypt and get to Mount Sinai, God makes a conditional promise to them. And the, you always know if it's conditional, if it starts with the word if. And throughout this covenant that God makes, what's called uh, the Sinai covenant or the old covenant, as we would call it as, as Christians, the covenant is, if you will do this, then I will do that. And this is how it always works. And it's always dependent on one person keeping their end of the bargain. And if one person keeps their end of the bargain, then the other person is required to keep their end. Now, but this was never meant to be the end of the story. The conditional covenant was never meant to be the end of the story. 900 years after the children of Israel leave Egypt, a prophet named Jeremiah speaks words that would hint at what Jesus is introducing on this night. In Jeremiah chapter 31, it says this, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel and the people of Judah. It will not be like the covenant I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand and led them out of Egypt because they broke my covenant, though I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. This is the covenant I will make with the people of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I will put my law, in their minds and write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. You see, there was this promise that another covenant was coming. And it wouldn't be like, this, like the, the one that was at Mount Sinai that was written in stone. Instead, it would be one that was written on the human heart. Back to the Passover with Jesus and his disciples. Jesus says, this is the new covenant in my blood. Now you have to understand that a covenant is an arrangement, an agreement between two parties. The Mount Sinai covenant was conditional. If you will do this, then I will do that. And this is how people understood and interacted with God. What Jesus is instituting on this night is a new covenant. It is an agreement that is unconditional because it's an agreement between God the Father and God the Son. And we become the beneficiaries of that covenant. And this covenant won't be based on what nation you're part of or what family you belong to. It will be based on what Jesus has personally done for you. And that's why Jesus says, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. We are the beneficiaries of it, even though we play no role in it. So what does that mean? What does that mean for us today? Three things. Here's the first one. And that is that Jesus came to make dead people alive. 
Now, a lot of times people think, no, Jesus came to make me a better person. No, Jesus did not come to make bad people good. He came to make dead people alive. And the challenge is, if we kind of mix up our thinking in that, then we will think that God only loves us when we're good or when we're trying to be good. Do you know that God loved you long before that? In fact, the Apostle Paul, who had an amazing conversion experience, he hated Christians and then had this vision of Jesus and became a Christian. He said this when he wrote a letter to a group of Christians in Rome. He says, you see, at just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good person, someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Now, here's what that means. We love people at their best. When you got married, you were at your best, right? You know, he rented a tux. He got a haircut. And, you know, she spent the equivalent of a car payment just for someone to do her hair and makeup. And when you saw her, you couldn't believe that she had said yes to you. And listen, I've been a pastor for more than 20 years, and I've officiated hundreds of weddings, and I have never in my life ever seen an ugly bride. I have met many ugly wives, but I've never seen an ugly bride. Every bride is radiant, beautiful, and stunning. But that's not when God chose us. Remember six months after the wedding, when he would only wear sweatpants and showering was optional? Remember when you thought you had married Brad Pitt, but you married his brother Armpit instead? And, uh, you see, you see, uh, she didn't have the hair and makeup team. Instead, she's wearing cream all over her face and she's got this giant robe with flip-flops. I want to tell you something. That's when God picked you, when you were at your worst, long before you were serving him, long before you cared about pleasing him. Now, he, why is that important? Because it reveals how much he loves us and there's nothing that you can do to make him love you less. And here's the second thing that God's forgiveness is not dependent on you. You see, the beauty of this reality is that you can't mess this up. Jesus died for you so that you could be forgiven. Jesus paid the price so that God could be both just for requiring a high price for sin and gracious for paying the price himself. This is why God's forgiveness is never something I earn. It's something we receive as a free gift. Once again, Paul, in to that, that letter that he wrote to the Romans, he said this, for everyone has sinned. We all fall short of God's glorious standard. Yet God, in his grace, freely makes us right in his sight. He did this through Christ Jesus when he freed us from the penalty of our sins. This act of love, Jesus dying for us, gives us access to God forgiveness of all of our sins because this covenant is based on different rules. And Jesus has kept this covenant for you on your behalf. Third and lastly, communion reminds me that I'm free. It reminds us that we're free. When we celebrate communion, we are remembering this one part of the meal that's celebrated with unleavened bread. You know what unleavened bread is? It's bread that has not risen. Exodus teaches us, as we talked about earlier, that the people had to use unleavened bread because they didn't have time 
for the bread to rise when they left Egypt. The rabbis teach us something about this, and they say that this idea of unleavened bread is a picture, it's a lesson in humility. That by nature, we want to puff ourselves up. By nature, we want to make ourselves seem like more than we are. We want to seem like we've got it all under control, like we're self-sufficient. But communion reminds us who we really are. The unleavened bread reminds us that we are broken people who need a savior. We're people that don't have it all together. And that's okay. Because God is still working on me, on us, in me, and in us. And communion is our reminder that he's going to complete the work that he started. So, as you're watching from home, I want to invite you to take the bread and whatever you've got, whether you've got bread or you've got matzah or whatever it is, that this is our moment to remember that the bread represents a body that was broken. Jesus' body that was broken, crucified for us. And let's partake of the bread together. And now I want you to take the cup that represents this new covenant in his blood. Blood that was shed, what the apostle Peter would call you haven't been saved by silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Jesus. That is the symbol of the new covenant. That's the symbol of God's eternal love for us. Let's partake of the cup together. And let's pray together. Lord, we want to thank you so much for your amazing love, that this is our constant reminder that we don't have to seem like or be more than we are, but we can come to you as we are and experience forgiveness, peace, mercy, and grace. God, we're grateful that today is Friday, but Sunday's coming. Sunday is our day that we're going to rejoice that this wasn't the end of the story. You're going to do because you're in the business of doing and performing resurrections. So God, do that work, and we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening to today's podcast. If today you made a decision to follow Jesus, congratulations. It's one of the best decisions you've ever made, and we as a church want to help you with your next steps. You see, we have a free gift we'd like to give you, and in order for you to receive that gift, All you have to do is visit mycalvary.com forward slash begin. Don't forget to tune in next week for our next podcast. God bless you.